The interesting thing is that heroin has now become a drug that is affecting people in suburbs, people in white communities, people in communities that don't look like the community that they initially targeted. And now it's a completely different response. And it's such a stark thing for those who kind of recognize the genesis of how law enforcement responded to heroin and how they're responding now. Now, they're giving officers Narcan and to save people's lives. And that's wonderful. You want to save people's lives. Man, if only they wanted to do that for us. If only they cared so much about our lives that they would have responded to the crack crisis with help instead of handcuffs. Solomon Jones, author of the book, Ten Lives, Ten Demands. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show. Janice Adams. As journalist, historian, author, race and gender glass ceiling breaker, I wanted to do a show that would nurture our spirits, fuel us for the days ahead, to help us make that way out of no way through these trying times. I wanted to do a show about race, every race, and courage. A show where you and I meet public figures we want to know more about, and neighbors from whom we hear too little. Voices, perspectives, insights, we simply need to hear. I love the fact that one critic said of my work, Janice Adams gives us vitamins for the soul. Well, with this episode of the podcast, here's a dose for your day. Solomon Jones, author of the book, Ten Lives, Ten Demands, Life and Death Stories, and a Black Activist's Blueprint for Racial Justice. He's my guest today here on The Janice Adams Show. I seldom get biblical in this space, but when I contemplate the historical record of the war in Afghanistan, one passage keeps bubbling to the surface. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For me, that simple verse from the Gospel of Matthew sums up the misadventure that was the war in Afghanistan. America spent $2 trillion on a 20-year mistake that spanned four presidencies. Through Republican and Democratic administrations, across liberal and conservative ideologies, America sent troops and contractors and spies to Afghanistan on credit, knowing that the final bill would be far higher than the initial estimates. $6.5 according to Forbes. To make matters worse, America did it all while our domestic infrastructure crumbled, while our economic inequity ballooned, and while our racial and ethnic strife swelled to a crescendo of chaos. Ultimately, the hearts of those who would keep us mired in this war are not with the people. Their hearts are with the politically connected corporate interests and weapons manufacturers who benefit from armed conflict. And alas, that is where they put their treasure, into the pockets of those who enriched themselves while more than 2,400 American soldiers died for a war that gained us nothing. As a black man, I'm especially outraged because I know what a fraction of that money could have done in my community. In Philadelphia, where roughly a quarter of our citizens live in poverty, spending $300 million per day as we did in Afghanistan over the past 20 years, would change the economic outlook in communities where poor education, lack of job opportunities, and racism 
have combined to create a hopelessness that breeds gun violence. It's also true that the biggest domestic terror threat we currently face is the danger posed by violent white nationalists who target black and brown people right here on American soil. I suspect we could eradicate that threat for a fraction of the cost of the Afghan war. However, putting American treasure behind the battle against racism would mean refocusing our hearts, taking a long look in the mirror, and mustering the courage to change our collective will. And I don't know if we're ready to make that change. Solomon Jones, author, journalist, talk show host. And his book is Ten Lives, Ten Demands, Life and Death Stories, and a Black Activist's Blueprint for Racial Justice. Solomon Jones, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Since that op-ed published September 2021 in the Philadelphia Inquirer, our situation has clearly gotten more dire. So what is your blueprint, therefore, for fixing it? Mm, That's a big question. I think that ultimately we have to have a plan. I think that we have the righteous indignation. I think that we have the anger. I think that we have the angst, but I, but I think ultimately we have to have a plan. What I saw when we took to the streets and protested in 2020 was anger, and that anger was absolutely needed, and I think it was justified. But what I did not see was a plan. And so in the wake of those protests, uh, what you saw was statues come down. You saw the names of buildings changed. You saw things that were symbolic in nature that would not change the substance of our situation. What I've learned as an activist is that you have to first determine what your demands are, determine what your fallback positions are, determine how you are going to get those who are empowered to give those demands substance, and then you have to figure out how to get them to the table. And so my blueprint is to craft these 10 demands around what is happening in our criminal justice system, and then form strategies to get those demands and to make them into reality. You title your book, 10 Lives, 10 Demands, and you list 10 lives, George Floyd, Michael Brown, Hassan Bennett, Breonna Taylor, Eric Garner, Alton Sterling, Tamir Rice, Trayvon Martin, Deborah Danner, and Sandra Bland. How did you come up with those 10 when we know the numbers are are extreme? In fact, I have reminded people that at this point per week, the number of unarmed Black people murdered by police on average now is higher than the number of people lynched on average per week at the height of the lynching era. Each one of these lives represents so many other people who face the same type of situation that they did. Um, Each one of these lives represent um, other people who are not here to speak for themselves. And I think that in looking at these cases, each one of them represents an aspect of the criminal justice system that is corrupt and racist and needs to be changed. And so each life really is a, a symbol of so many others who have uh, who have met the same fate as they did. 
When you say the criminal justice system, I think a lot of people then say, well, these are people who've committed some kind of criminal act. And so isn't it logical that it would invoke some kind of ire or some kind of response? What say you? I say that many of us do not commit any criminal act before we are um, confronted by the criminal justice system. I think that Black people are treated differently from the point at which they are confronted by police until the point at which they are either imprisoned, physically harmed, or killed. These cases show that in no uncertain terms. And sometimes you have people who end up wrapped up in this system when they have done absolutely nothing wrong and are wrongfully convicted. The the wrong is done by the criminal justice system rather than by the people who are victimized by it in many of these cases. I would also say that even if you do commit a crime, that does not give police officers the right to be judge, jury, and executioner. Their job is to enforce the law. Their job is to make arrests. And then district attorneys file charges. But in terms of what is happening now in too many of these cases, you have police officers becoming judge, jury, and executioner. And whether or not you've committed a crime, that's wrong. When I hear you frame it that way, I think case in point, Breonna Taylor. Yes. Um, Many people in response to Black Lives Matter, let me be honest, many white people in response to hearing Black Lives Matter said, what are you talking about? That's reverse racism. All lives matter. Well, Breonna Taylor is one of those situations where all lives did not matter. She did nothing wrong. The reason for her death had to do with a former boyfriend that they were wrongly pursuing at her apartment and a neighbor who was white, who was harmed by that police action, apologies and repair to him were made, but none to this moment for Breonna Taylor. How do you explain that? I mean, in the frame, I know you can't explain it emotionally and intellectually, but in the frame. Racism. I mean, there's really no other, there's no other explanation for it. And I think that you, you have to call it what it is in order to deal with that issue. Breonna Taylor, of course, was a victim of a system that allowed police officers to run amok. They were supposed to have body cameras. They did not. They had a no-knock warrant, which they probably should not have had for that particular residence. They had uh, documents that claimed that there was drug activity there, and clearly there was not. This young woman was uh, an EMT. She was someone who had never been in trouble with the law. Her only mistake was being involved with someone who had had some trouble with the law, and that relationship was over. So she's in her home with her new boyfriend. They've watched a movie. They have fallen asleep when suddenly there's banging at the door. Now, remember, this is supposed to be a no-knock warrant, right? And so the police claim they announced themselves as police. Uh, Nobody heard them. Somebody said later, one of numerous people who are in that apartment complex later said they heard them say police. But this was after the story was out. So they changed what what they initially said. And 
it was a tragedy. It was a tragedy for this young woman. Can you imagine someone coming into a place that is a predominantly white area and acting in the same way, coming to a white person's house and acting in the same way? This is not something that that we see. And so um, the only explanation that I can offer is racism, but not only for the actions of those the police officers that night, but also what happened in the aftermath. I remember sitting in, in my living room and looking at my television when the judge was citing who would be charged and what the charges were in relation to what happened to Breonna Taylor. And I remember her talking about police officers being charged with endangering uh, certain people. And they were naming the people by their initials. And I kept waiting for the initials BT, but it never came because the people who they were charged with endangering were, to your point, her white neighbors. We see one injustice piled on top of another for a system that upholds racism. I think in particular of the Kyle Rittenhouse trial for a teenager who violated laws in two states to cross state lines with a military-style rifle, come to a demonstration, which was a Black Lives Matter demonstration, and all he had to say to get off was, I support Black lives, even though his behavior, every step of his behavior said otherwise. And the judge threw out the state violations against him before the verdict so that it was also sending a message, this isn't important. The question becomes, when you have something like that, the messaging, the methods, and who is really in this country entitled to self-defense? Because that was also the linchpin for both the Kyle Rittenhouse, that he, as a young 17-year-old white boy, was felt threatened when he got there. But the people who felt threatened by a teenager carrying a military-style rifle into this situation were not allowed to feel threatened. Brianna Teller's boyfriend was not allowed to feel threatened. The police also charged. So how, how do you frame this? How do we get around this? Well, I think it goes to one of the one of the stories that I wrote about, which was that of Trayvon Martin, um, a young man who happened to also be 17, uh, who was on the other end of violence committed by, you know, a civilian who, who was not black. And George Zimmerman was protected by stand your ground laws, which allow for people to claim that they felt threatened. They felt like their life was in danger. And so they used deadly force. Um, and had no duty to retreat. Although his lawyers did not cite the stand your ground laws in his defense, the interesting thing is that the judge gave instructions which included the language from the stand your ground law. And so here is a judge telling these jurors that no, he had no duty to retreat, that if he felt threatened, he had the right to defend himself. And what happens with these laws, which have been enacted in several states across the country, is that white people are allowed to stand on these laws, whereas black people are not. And so, again, the criminal justice system from the confrontation with police to the arrest 
to the decision as to whether or not to charge, what to charge them with, to the trial, and then what happens after the trial with the judges in many cases is biased. It is biased in a way that tends to uphold white supremacy. And so what I would say is that you have to change the laws. And and that is not always a national thing. Sometimes that's at the local level or at the state level, but we have to know where the threat is coming from and then um, act accordingly. With uh, stand your ground laws, that is one of those threats. And with the more information we're armed with, uh, the better the better we are in terms of getting things overturned. Solomon Jones, he's the author of Ten Lives, Ten Demands, Life and Death Stories and a Black Activist's Blueprint for Racial Justice. Solomon, you list 10 people, I've named them, but for each of these people, you have a reason why you chose them, but that reason is in the form of what your blueprint action point would address. Which was the first one you chose? George Floyd. Um, I chose George Floyd first because um, his story was one that it moved people across the country and across the world. The sight of this man having the life slowly squeezed from his body um, by this police officer as people stood by begging him to let this man go as other officers stood by and did nothing to help George Floyd, as a criminal justice system stood by and watched um, someone be murdered. It was such an impactful story and it reminded me of many things. It reminded me of myself. It reminded me of other people who have been vilified after they were killed by police uh, as if they somehow deserved the fate that they received. It reminded me of so many things. And I think for many people, it did that same thing. And so he was he was the first one that I chose. And of the 10, which did you debate about putting? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, hmm. I think that maybe Deborah Danner. Deborah Danner was a woman in New York who was killed by the police. She was someone who was dealing with mental illness. She was someone who was older. Um, and she did not fit the typical profile of the people that we see and hear about who tend to be younger, who tend to be male. And there were many people to choose from in terms of uh, dealing with that issue of mental illness. But it was, I think, her intelligence, the fact that she almost foretold what had happened to her in a lucid moment when she was doing well and, and was able to write about police interactions in New York that affected the mentally ill in the same way that it affected her. But that was the one I debated about because there were others that, that I could have chosen, but I chose her. And of course, her death was presaged by decades by Eleanor Bumpers. That's right. Uh, That's right. A, another Black woman. And there it was her skin color. They actually said she was dark. They actually said that she was a big woman. And so mm -hmm. it was used as the way to feel threatened when they burst in her door and, and she tried to just say, what do I do next for herself? And Eleanor Bumpers was killed much the same way. When we come back, more with my guest, Solomon Jones. He is the author of 
Ten Lives, Ten Demands, Life and Death Stories, and a Black Activist's Blueprint for Racial Justice. More after the break. Here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest, Solomon Jones. He's the author of the book, Ten Lives, Ten Demands, Life and Death Stories and a Black Activist's Blueprint for Racial Justice. Solomon, reading your op-ed, your book, thinking about the long-term implications of what's happened and the war on drugs that you refer to in your preface, my mind went back to this clip from Dr. King, April 4th, 1967, his Riverside Church speech, one year to the day before he was assassinated, beyond Vietnam when silence is betrayal. Let's hear the clip. That is, at the outset, a very obvious and almost facile connection between the war in Vietnam and the struggle I and others in waging in America. A few years ago, there was a shining moment in that struggle. It seemed as if there was a real promise of hope for the poor, both black and white, through the poverty program. There were experiments, hopes, new beginnings. Then came the build-up in Vietnam, and I watched this program broken and eviscerated, as if it was some idle political plaything of a society gone mad on war. And I knew that America would never invest the necessary funds or energies in rehabilitation of its poor, so long as adventures like Vietnam continue to draw men and skills and money like some demonic destructive suction tube. So I was increasingly compelled to see the war as an enemy of the poor and to attack it as such. Perhaps a more tragic recognition of reality took place and it became clear to me that the war was doing far more than devastating the hopes of the poor at home. We were taking the black young men who had been crippled by our society and sending them 8,000 miles away to guarantee liberties in Southeast Asia, which they had not found in Southwest Georgia and East Holland. Yeah. So I want to read from the preface of my book. With dull and vacant eyes, I stared into the camera. My skin, normally the rich brown color of dark chocolate, was dry and gray. My unkempt hair was dirty and tightly curled. My facial expression was that of a man resigned to the belief that he would die homeless and crack addicted. It was that picture, a mugshot from one of my seven arrests for charges ranging from retail theft to attempted burglary, that marked my first television appearance. No one was asking my opinion on CNN back then. I was simply a piper, a crackhead, a disposable cog in the wheel of a drug culture that thrived on the desperation of people like me. 
But on that day when they flashed my mugshot on Philadelphia's Fox 29, I achieved an infamy normally reserved for murderers. I was one of the city's most wanted, and most viewers who saw my picture likely believed I deserved to be punished. More than two decades later, they believed the same thing about a Black man named George Floyd. The narrative of Black criminality came straight from the war on drugs, a political strategy that targeted African Americans as far back as the early 1970s. The demonization of Black addicts like myself made for entertaining television. More importantly, it served as the pretext for an all-out attack on Black communities. That's the way John Ehrlichman, an advisor to President Richard Nixon, laid it out in a 1994 Harper's Magazine interview when Ehrlichman explained that Nixon's war on drugs had two enemies, the anti-war left and Black people. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or Black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and Blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities, Ehrlichman told the reporter. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. That's exactly what happened. On June 17, 1971, President Richard Nixon walked into a White House press briefing and said, America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. Nixon was using the language of military conflict to describe his plan to fight drugs, and that was no accident. America's losses in Vietnam were producing ever more damaging headlines, including the 1968 murder conviction of Lieutenant William Calley, commander of the American soldiers who brutally slaughtered 22 Vietnamese civilians in what became known as the My Lai Massacre. As a journalist, I had the privilege of co-anchoring the Nixon Watergate hearings and his, his impeachment. But his impeachment and his demise politically did not stop what you're talking about. It essentially seems to have had no effect on what you're talking about. And then, in contrast, we have the opioid crisis of the... I don't have to say any more. You don't, because, I mean, it's so ironic. So Ehrlichman talks about associating Blacks with heroin, right, and criminalizing them because of it, and associating hippies or young white people who were kind of counterculture at the time with being part of the anti-war left. And so, you know, the war ends, Nixon is impeached, he's gone, but this war on drugs keeps going, first of all, because it produces jobs, it produces money, it allows you to vilify people and get rid of them and marginalize them and take away opportunities from them. But the interesting thing is that heroin has now become a drug that is affecting people in suburbs, people in white communities, people in communities that don't look like the community that they initially targeted. And now it's a completely different response. And it's such a stark thing for those who kind of recognize the genesis of how law enforcement responded to heroin and how they're responding now. Now, they're giving officers Narcan and to save people's lives. And that's wonderful. You want to save people's lives. Man, if only they wanted to do that for us. If only they cared so much about our lives that they would have responded to the crack crisis with help instead of handcuffs. 
If only they would have cared enough about our lives to actually try to get us into facilities rather than into prisons. If only they had cared enough about our lives to try to give us another chance like they are doing now with white communities that are affected by heroin. What kind of outcome would we have had? And I wonder about that a lot. What do I say next? Because it's it's so much and it's so repetitious. And at least at the time of this taping, mm-hmm. we are in year 403 yep. of this madness with no end in sight. And I don't want to be hopeless. I, mm-hmm. I remember Dr. Boy's writing of a time not hopeless, right. but unhopeful. And when you speak and you speak so knowledgeably, which is why you can be so passionate about it. I'm just in my own way speechless because I'm so angry. And even though I personally have not experienced some of the worst parts of what you're talking about, but I think it's important to say that what I've lived is the threat of it every day and the threat of the implications of it every day. I've been called up to be on a grand jury just from the voter rolls. I begin to see just listening to the way it proceeds that there's a stack up here. And I say, but I saw all these people. You know, this is only one courthouse in one borough of New York on one day in one hour. And therefore, this is an industry that is being underwritten with Black bodies. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And that industry continues. And so when you have someone whose story is counter to the narrative that helps to bolster that industry, well, then you have to try to figure out a way to make them fit into the narrative. And so you do the toxicology test on George Floyd and you say, well, he had drugs in his system. And so that's why he was so out of control and he needed to be subdued. And and it was an unfortunate byproduct of his own actions that caused his death. It wasn't a police officer with his knee on his neck for nine and a half minutes. It was George Floyd had drugs in his system. And then you have to look at, at the person's criminal record and say, well, you know, George Floyd had all of these previous arrests. And so George Floyd is not this sympathetic character that you're trying to um, make him out to be. He is actually somebody who is a criminal and who was confronted by this police officer because he was a criminal. He handed out a fake $20 bill. And, and that's why the confrontation began. And it escalated not because of the police officer's actions, but but because of his. And, and it had to be because of his, because look at his record. And this is what happens over and over and over again, that people who are actually victims are demonized. People who are actually victims, their pasts and and their their actions are weaponized against them um, in order to justify a system that uh, is, is a danger to Black lives. I've passed a counterfeit bill. In fact, I was so dumb, I passed it at the bank because I did not know it was a counterfeit bill. And what happens in those situations is that you pass a counterfeit bill, the bank officer comes out and they say, Ms. Adams, we are sorry to inform you this is a counterfeit bill. We have to seize it. And you get no compensation for the fact that someone just passed you a counterfeit bill and nothing happens. But nobody comes out, has police calls, surrounds you. Well, 
I did it in Wilton, Connecticut, a 99.9% white community. And in a 99.9% white community, they do not call the police for a $20 counterfeit bill. On the other hand, had I been a black man that they did not know and who was not a depositor, Derek Chauvin may have come for me the way he came for George Floyd. So, you know, I I ask people when you hear these things, let's use common sense. $20 counterfeit bill that we still have no proof of whether he really even knew it was counterfeit just because Derek Chauvin killed him and we couldn't ask him. And that becomes, I think, the part of the story that makes this book necessary. Because these people can't speak for themselves. They're not here to tell their stories. They're not here to um, explain that, no, I was a person with, with a life and with people who loved me and with people who I loved and I deserved to live. They're not here to say that. This book was absolutely necessary, A, to tell their stories, and then B, to tell those of us who remain what we can do about it. You open the book with, as you read to us, a portion of your story and a portrait of yourself that as we hear you speaking now, we wouldn't even think to associate with you. How did you come to your story and what changed your life so that you are here able to tell the stories of others? Well, I grew up in in Philadelphia, uh, West Oak Lane, until my parents got divorced and in North Philly, which was a poorer community, but it was a community, I think, that was rich in connections between people. I learned in North Philly that you could share even if you didn't have much. I learned in North Philly that you could be proud of, of what you had, even if you didn't have much, you know, and, and so I will always value my time there. But I think the other thing that happens in poor Black communities is that they are communities that are flooded with drugs. Um, I didn't try any drugs until I was, you know, in my teens, uh, probably senior in high school. And uh, for me, drug use escalated. It escalated from marijuana and beer to uh, powder cocaine to crack cocaine, and then it was off to the races. I had never been in trouble at all before drugs. You know, I remember one of my jobs that I had was as a police dispatcher. And when they hire you in the police department in Philadelphia, they send people around. They send detectives, actually, to ask your neighbors questions, to just look into your background a little bit. I had never been in trouble before, and so I had no problem getting that job. But, you know, my drug use escalated during that time. And eventually I found myself on the street. You know, working was it was too much. I had to figure out some other things to do. Because I couldn't wait eight hours. I couldn't wait one week for a paycheck. I couldn't do those things with with the addiction that I was dealing with. And so, you know, ended up in some trouble. But, you know, it was all minor, minor stuff, petty stuff. And thank God I never was convicted of anything. But uh, the, the news felt like, well, here's a guy we can put on our Philly's Most Wanted thing and portray him as this bad guy. And that's what they did. You're tall. Yeah. How tall are you? No, I'm I'm not that tall. I'm five ten, right? Okay, so but I'm dark. 
And and hey. I was about to go to the next thing. <laughs> I was about to go to the next thing. And at that point, you were younger. Yes, I was. You have mm-hmm. a certain muscle tone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I look sinister to them, you know. So put this guy on on the television screen and just show him and show his, you know, all of the aliases that he used because I was dumb. And and I think that that's what happened with George Floyd. George Floyd was this guy who was, you know, he was tall. He was about six seven. Um, and dark and had very African features and, and uh, to certain people that that is sinister. And so after what happened to him, it was easy for them to say, well, look, this is George Floyd's rap sheet. Look, this is what was in George Floyd's system. And I, the other thing I think that, and to answer the second half of your question, I have a loving family and I have faith. And so after all of the rehabs and all of the other places that they tell you to go and the programs that they tell you to do, and and I did all of those things, it really came down to a loving family and faith, praying for help and really wanting to do something different. And so deciding at a point after I had almost lost my life because I had walking pneumonia out and living on the streets in the winter, deciding that I wanted to do something different. So that's how. What was the first moment you crossed through the drug portal? Probably the first time I tried crack cocaine was probably the first time that things were different, right? So I could smoke weed and drink beer and maybe even snort some coke and still function. Crack is a cheaper form of of cocaine that is a very quick and intense high. And so you get this quick, intense high and you're immediately trying to get it again. And uh, Sade said, it's never as good as the first time. And she was right. And so you find yourself chasing um, what you felt the first time that you actually got it. Right. And and you never find that. And you end up on this hamster wheel. If you're lucky, you're, you're in the same space. And if not, you're going backwards and you find yourself in a, in a place that uh, that you never expected that you would be. The time that you were going through that, you were part of the police force because you said you were a police dispatcher? I was a police dispatcher. And I think it's one of the reasons why my view of these people that I'm writing about is a little bit different. It's a little bit different because you don't know who somebody is going to become. You don't know what they have the potential to be. You don't know what they know, you know, what kind of education they've had. You don't know any of those things. I think all of these people could have been someone, could have been something more if only they had had the opportunity and had not had their lives snuffed out or had their lives um, adversely affected by a criminal justice system that assumes that Black life has no value. As you talk about that. And I looked over at your book and and the name that jumped out at my eye was Trayvon Martin. And to your point about you don't know who someone will be, I am remembering that in the exact same town where he was murdered by George Zimmerman for an action that George Zimmerman precipitated, 
That is the exact same town that tried to run Jackie Robinson out of town when he was there to begin his baseball career. So the question becomes also, what responsibility do white people have for their own mindset that makes them tell each other, pass it down from generation to generation, that a dark skin is a threat to them? What responsibility do they have to fix that? Because we can't. Yeah, I think that there are a couple of answers to that. One, I think that white people who understand that racism exists and understand that the criminal justice system is biased and understand that uh, people in their community are a threat to us and I think to a large extent to America itself, they have to stand up and, and do what needs to be done to help their friends, their neighbors, their family members to change. They have to do it. And many of them, to their credit, are doing that work. Um, some of them have, have lost their lives doing that work. You talked about Kyle Rittenhouse earlier. Uh, the protesters he killed were white. And they were out protesting uh, because Jacob Blake, a black man, had been shot in the back seven times by a police officer. They knew that was wrong. They went out to protest. and. Kyle Rittenhouse came there with an automatic weapon and, and killed them. Because for those who don't believe uh, that Black life has value, those who would side with us also have no value, right? Those who would, who would stand up for Black lives become enemies. And so um, they lost their lives fighting for racial justice. Um, Heather Heyer lost her life. Um, fighting for racial justice um, in Charlottesville, where James James Fields uh, ran into a crowd and and ran over her and killed her uh, as she was fighting for racial justice. We need people in the white community to stand up, to know that there's a risk in doing so, but to stand up and say this is not right, and I will stand up and I will fight. Uh, to make sure that what we are doing as a country lives up to the ideals that that we claim, that that everyone is created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights and all of that flowery, beautiful, high-minded language, um, that that we are going to make this a reality in this country or we're going to die trying. Like that really does have to be what happens not only in the white community, but in our community as well. We cannot give up. We cannot give in. We cannot act like there's no hope um, because there's always hope. As long as we can look up, we can get up. And, and for me, having gone through what, what I've gone through as someone who was drug addicted and homeless 26 years ago, you know, I, I understand the power of hope. We have to have hope. We have to have hope. Solomon Jones, author of the book, Ten Lives, Ten Demands, Life and Death Stories, A Black Activist's Blueprint for Racial Justice. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. I am a 28-year-old black male who enjoys reading your writing. 
came the letter to my email box, I would like to request from you a reading list of recommended African-American books that will help to open my mind. Sincerely, a student of life. I understood where he was coming from. I knew what books had done for me, how the right books had opened my mind and opened doors. Indeed, whenever I give a talk, someone will inevitably stay behind to confide, if only I'd known, to ask, why didn't anyone tell me to say thank you for helping me to break through the code of silence on a vast world of experience, ideas, and possibilities. Well, that email and some of the people that I've met at those lectures inspired my list, 50 books that changed the history of African America, and you can download your free copy from my website. Just go to JaniceAdams.com, J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S.com, and click on Books and More in the menu. For more about the podcast, my books, speaking engagements, you know what to do. Visit JaniceAdams.com. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with my guest. He is Solomon Jones, author, journalist, talk show host. And his book is Ten Lives, Ten Demands, Life and Death Stories, and a Black Activist's Blueprint for Racial Justice. Solomon, you were going to read something for us from your book. Yes, it's the story of Hassan Bennett. He is a man who was sentenced to prison for a murder he did not commit. And he represented himself and had a good outcome. Hassan came to the fourth trial, having made a fateful decision. There had already been enough lies, he thought. So Hassan walked into the courtroom and pleaded his case while wearing his prison uniform. When I asked him why he did that, his answer was simple. Why lie? Hassan asked rhetorically. Why disguise? If I put on a disguise in front of you, I'm hiding something. If you figure out I'm hiding something, if it looks like I'm hiding something, how can you trust what's coming out of my mouth? I'm just a tricky lawyer if I show you I'm hiding something. The effect of Hassan's prison clothing was jarring, but it was his command of the facts that influenced the outcome, especially when it came to the police misconduct that led to his conviction. Hassan told the jury that former Philadelphia homicide detective James Pitts coerced shooting survivor Corey Ford and Lamont Dade, Hassan's co-defendant, into giving incriminating statements against Hassan. That was not an unusual allegation. Pitts had a long record of being accused of using coercion and physical abuse to force false confessions from witnesses and defendants. According to a 2017 report from the Philadelphia Inquirer, the city of Philadelphia paid or was ordered to pay more than $2.5 million in seven lawsuits in which Pitts was named as a defendant. Hassan filed a motion to present Pitts' history to the jurors. The district attorney argued against it and the judge denied the motion. That meant Hassan wasn't allowed to say anything about the many lawsuits and allegations of Pitt's forced confessions. Still, there was no doubt that the witnesses changed their stories over time. Both Corey Ford's and Lamont Dade's initial statements said that Dade shot Devin English and rifled his pockets and that Hassan shot Ford numerous times. The men recanted their statements in court testifying that Pitts forced them to identify Hassan as the shooter. 
When Hassan called Pitts to the stand, the former detective claimed the men were lying, but Hassan challenged Pitts on his testimony. The jury believed Hassan even without testimony about the numerous lawsuits, court filings, and internal affairs reports in which Pitts had been accused of forcing statements from suspects and witnesses in other cases. As a result, Hassan was acquitted on all counts and released from prison. Weeks after that triumphant moment, as he sat before me in a radio studio, I asked Hassan what he felt when he was freed. Vindication, certification, like, yes, I'm here, I proved it. I not only proved that I didn't do this crime, I proved that we ain't as dumb as you think we are. When we put our mind to something, we can accomplish anything. It ain't nothing that we can't accomplish once we dedicate our mind to it and find the resources to get it done. Hassan, who has often spoken publicly concerning issues of police, racism, and misconduct since his release, now works with the Defenders Association of Philadelphia, helping others who are accused of crimes. However, Hassan's story is not complete because he has not received recompense for the nearly 13 years he lost to a racist criminal justice system. Pennsylvania is one of 15 states that provide no compensation for those who've been wrongly imprisoned. And that is unjust. But ongoing compensation to those who did the deed, keeping them employed, keeping them in positions, you know? I'm going to put it to you this way in these last moments, because it's clear that other than, as you outlined at the top of the show, this prison industrial complex that then is upheld by the war on drugs being a metaphor to carry forth something else. But the point is that it's really not doing most of us any good, regardless of what your race is. It's simply not doing us as a country any good. So tell us how your blueprint will help us grow, confront, atone for what we've done so we can grow and move on as a society. Well, I think that Martin Luther King said, you can't legislate morality, but you can regulate behavior. I think about people like Tamir Rice, who was 12 years old uh, when he was killed by a police officer um, when he was playing with a toy gun. I think about Trayvon Martin, who was 17 years old when he was killed by a vigilante uh, in Sanford, Florida. I think about people like Michael Brown, who was 18 years old when he was killed by a police officer. They had their whole lives ahead of them and could have been anything, could have been contributors to our society could have been people who made a difference in their community, could have been fathers, could have been husbands, could have been workers, right? Could have been people who were contributing to making America all that it could be. And I think that when we allow systems to remain in place that not only take lives, but take potential, then we are all doing ourselves a disservice. If you don't stand up against it, you are harming yourself, you are harming future generations, and you're harming this country. I believe that all of us could do better if you did not have a large portion of society spending an inordinate amount of time figuring out ways to hold down everybody else. Um, that energy could be better used in other ways. And so 
These 10 demands are about changing things that are unjust, changing systems that are racist, and allowing people to reach their full potential and, and thus allowing all of us to do better as a country. You know, there's a phrase, um, never let the enemy define the terms of the argument. And that phrase is coming to me because every time we say the word criminal justice system, we're essentially putting our fingers on the scale of how we perceive it. So my question to you is, knowing what you know, your command of language and communications, what should we be calling this? <laughs> I call it an injustice system. I really do, um, because it is a system that perpetuates injustice. We have 2.3 million people in jails and prisons in the United States. That is unconscionable. Um, and no other uh, developed society imprisons people at the rate that we do. It is a waste of resources. It is a waste of human potential. And it is a, a grand injustice. And so if I had my druthers, I would call it an injustice system because that's what it is. It's a system that perpetuates injustice. Solomon Jones, thank you so much for joining me here on the show today. I am so pleased that you chose to address the situation by writing this book, 10 Lives, 10 Demands, Life and Death Stories, and a Black Activist's Blueprint for Racial Justice, might I add, for Human Rights in the United States. Solomon Jones, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks to our guest and to you for joining us here on The Janice Adams Show today. For links to my guest, his work, and more, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S Adams.com. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rubio, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.